it always gets my attention when a particular passage of scripture and the heading above it begins with these words, a statement of divine disgust. And that is the, the uh, subtitle for this morning's set of passages, the cheery beginning from Amos chapter 5, beginning verse 18 through 24. This from the Common English Bible. Doomed to those who desire the day of the Lord, why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light, as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear, or sought refuge in a house, rested a hand against the wall, and was bitten by a snake. Isn't the day of the Lord darkness, not light, all dark with no brightness in it? I hate, I reject your festivals. I don't enjoy your joyous assemblies. If you bring me your entirely burnt offerings and gifts of food, I won't be pleased. I won't even look at your offerings of well-fed animals. Take away the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. When I was seven years old, one of my friends, a few years older than me, invited me over to play. He lived across the neighborhood. It wasn't far, and after I'd been there a while, he invited me to go outside. So I followed him out the back door and to the backside of what they referred to as their woodpile. And after peeking around the end of the woodpile to see if his parents were watching us from the house and determining they were not, he stuck his 10-year-old bony arm inside the gap between a couple of sticks of wood and pulled forth a Ziploc bag filled with pages from some very grown-up magazines, let's say. I wondered if my seven-year-old eyeballs were going to vaporize in absolute shame. In fact, I was so overcome with anxiety that I do not remember what exactly was said. I do remember that he offered me a couple of the pictures of women wearing nothing but some very tall, pointy high heels, and that I had tucked them into the pocket of my jeans before riding my bicycle back home in shame and anxiety. And I was so irrationally upset and guilty feeling by the time that I got back to the house that I tore up the pictures into as many pieces as I could, thinking I would dispose of them and avoid what would be certain confrontation with my very strict Christian parents. The problem? Well, in my irrational guilt and confusion, I threw the tiny pieces of the pictures into the dirty clothes hamper. And within an hour or two, my mother pulled me aside without mentioning a word about these pictures, but instead asking as her eyes stared straight through my soul, is there anything you want to talk about? <laughs> I broke down crying immediately, and before long we had prayed what at the time my religious tradition called a sinner's prayer. And when calling the pastor to report on my conversion to Christianity and turning away from sin, and at the same time schedule my baptism. Fortunately, my parents left out the embarrassing details of what led to this moment of confession. And within a couple of weeks, 
I was baptized at the church, and everyone was using these words. I heard them. I'm not sure these words meant what they thought they meant. They said, well, David got saved. Saved? But from what? Or to what? No one told me much more than that, though I understood it to mean saved from certain eternal damnation and a guaranteed uh, home in heaven after I died inside the pearly gates. But does a prayer do that? Is it scriptural? Is it the entire purpose of what Christians call salvation? Does that sum it up, a prayer of confession? It certainly might be one small part of it, but as I will suggest today, salvation is not a single event, nor is Christianity primarily about an afterlife. This is terribly difficult for some to grasp, because if it's not, then what is exactly our Christian product? What is it? Well, today, as the prophet Amos suggested in our text, salvation is about many things, but at the very heart of them all is about justice and righteousness. And so we will take time to notice that in the most scriptural senses, salvation is a lifelong process of the transformation not only of ourselves, but of our world. And those things are inseparable for those on this journey uh, called salvation in terms of what the scripture has to say about it. So the Bible is actually almost void, if you really study its words, of any discussion regarding an afterlife. In fact, the Hebrew scriptures, a respectful way I've begun referring to what many call the Old Testament in light of our, our relationships with, with the Jewish persons, but also in an effort not to outdate these wise books. So in the Hebrew scriptures, they're actually quite void of afterlife discussions. This is because ancient Israel did not believe in an afterlife. Nowhere, in fact, in the beginnings of a book we call Genesis, nor in the next called Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt, nor in the wisdom books, Psalms or Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Job, do we find even a whiff of words about an afterlife. The text we read from Amos today is actually very much on par with Hebrew thinking about salvation in this case, Amos, who self-identifies, by the way, in his own book as a shepherd, espouses a grassroots, folk-level theology for salvation as they understood it for the Jewish people of ancient Israel, a turning away from self-interest and isolation towards a right relationship with God and neighbor. This would be the righteousness flowing like a stream part, meaning righteous relationships, right relationships with God and neighbor and justice flowing down like waters actually has economic and societal uh, connotations, a fair distribution of the daily provisions, the stuff it takes to live life, distributed among all the people without regard to who they were or where they came from. And in the Christian scriptures, or New Testament, if you prefer, most of the afterlife discussion has actually been read into the text and may not actually be there as often as we think by well-meaning people who have not understood what it means when Jesus said things like the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which were both almost always referring to building beloved community in this life, not some other life. So 
On the negative side, we read into the scriptures sometimes these punishment-oriented discussions around afterlife in the Christian scriptures or New Testament. And most of the time, when we read those into scripture, we, we actually don't really have a clue what people were talking about because we, it fails to dawn on us that the word most often used for hell in the New Testament scriptures was the word Gehenna, which was the actual name of a very specific landfill outside the city where the garbage literally burned 24 hours, seven days a week. It was a metaphor, most often, hell was. It's like a child spending the night at a friend's house for the first time in a strange room at a strange home, and maybe the weather is cold and windy, and they go to bed convinced that there is a long, squiggly black snake right on the windowsill, However, when they wake up in the morning, they are relieved to see it had just been a shadow from a twisty little branch on the tree just outside the window. When we go to the Bible looking for talk about afterlife, it's amazing how often we find it. But when we read the Bible to read us and we study what's really there, we're surprised when we wake up sometimes to see it was more about this life than some other now, in the Hebrew Scriptures, experiencing salvation is primarily about two things. Number one, deliverance. Number two, transformation. So we witness salvation as liberation from bondage or deliverance as the story of the Israelites and the Exodus getting away from slavery in Egypt. And so God uses an unlikely spokesperson, you may recall. Anyone remember that, un that unlikely spokesperson's name? Moses who according to his own confession has a thick tongue and great difficulty in speaking. And yet God leads the people out at the high point of tension. And as they are being chased by Pharaoh's armies and they run up against the waters of the Red Sea, these words appear, saved and salvation. At the very climax of this story, and as the story goes, they walk across on dry ground. Then in the 6th century... BCE, the Babylonians come along and they destroy Jerusalem, capturing the survivors who were left and taking the remaining Israelites with them as prisoners. And that exile lasted approximately 50 years until finally it ended when Persia conquered Babylon. And as the Israelites returned home, guess what we read? These words pop up again. Salvation and saved at the very climactic homecoming of God's people. And then in the book of Psalms, over and over and over again in imagery used in prayers and stories and poems and pleas, we hear these words, Save me, O God, from the pit. Deliver me from the wicked foes that surround me. And none of these pleas were talking about getting beamed up to heaven. The psalmist was begging for help in their own lifetime, not some other lifetime. For as the great Archbishop Desmond Tutu has said, the good news to a person who's hungry is bread. And to our spiritual ancestors in the Hebrew Scriptures, salvation was about the good news just when they needed it of deliverance and transformation in light of very pressing, dangerous, life-threatening concerns. It was very much about this life, not some other life, and so that seems to be the case over and over again in the Hebrew Scriptures. But what about the Christian Scriptures? You know, those books we tend to hold a little closer to home because of this person named Jesus of Nazareth. In the Christian scriptures, the words saved and salvation 
find a home most frequently in the healing stories of Jesus' ministry. And these words saved or salvation, they have deep metaphorical and more than literal meanings. In fact, there are movements, if we're watching, that happen in these healing stories. One common movement in these healing stories is a movement from blindness to what? To sight. That's right. I once was blind, but now I see, as the songwriter put it. And along these lines in John's gospel, Jesus is often referred to as the light of the world and the one who gives sight to the blind. And yet deeply important, and we miss it in these stories, there would be someone who might still be able to see with their eyeballs, and yet we're told they couldn't really see. Hmm. Another movement in Jesus' healing stories in the Gospels is a movement from death to what? To life. From death to life. So the deeply spiritual, more than literal meanings we should glean from these death-to-life stories is clear. Just as there are sighted folks who cannot actually see, there are living folks who are actually quite dead. Why do you think Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead? These stories have a more than factual, more than literal meaning. And so this is salvation. Uh, We find it also as as healing in these stories. Uh, Not only these sight problems and life problems, but the very wounds of our existence and and well-being and and the need for wholeness. And so it's interesting, the English word salvation has Latin roots that are the same as those for the word salve, an ointment for healing to promote wholeness. So plainly in the Christian scriptures, salvation is the healing of wounds and this journey towards healing and wholeness. And and, and one more theme worth mentioning in these healing stories of Jesus that we see a movement for salvation is also from fear to trust. From fear to trust. And so this overcoming of fear and anxiety is a common concern in the Bible. We hear the phrases, fear not, do not be afraid, but trust. And so there is this calling towards trust and away from fear. And in a famous passage of the Gospels, Jesus counsels his followers to not worry, to not be anxious, but instead to trust in God. So also in 1 Peter 5, 7, we are taught to cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. So I think many of the deeper metaphorical meanings, the larger-than-life meanings behind these salvation movements in the Christian scriptures are actually well summed up in the famous words of the American monk, writer, theologian, mystic, poet, and scholar Thomas Merton, who said, Let us come alive to the splendor that is all around us and see the beauty even in the ordinary things. Interestingly enough, when we start to see the beauty in the ordinary things and even in ourselves, we also awaken to the interdependence of our salvation on one another and also on all of creation. In both the Hebrew and Christian Testaments, salvation, you see, is never a privatized, isolated, individualized thing. The salvation, when it appears in in our Bible, is a journey and a process, and there are still, while there are still some profoundly personal experiences along the way, the ways the Bible uses the terms salvation, saved, or saved are always linked to the transformation and betterment of the broader communities involved. 
whether it is for the purpose of healing a nation or bringing together a region or a family of faith or a family at home, there is always, always, always a corporate, community-based component to salvation. There are no privatized components to salvation, no individualized occurrences that do not expand to include others. So salvation, in the most biblical sense, is something that must be lived out within the context of some kind of community. So when faith goes public, it gets political, not in a partisan sense, but in the sense of shaping the rules and the norms that we live by as a people, as a community, as a faith community. Salvation done right should definitely have an opinion, for example, on how people from one country treat immigrants from another country. The Bible has a lot to say about that. In fact, almost more than any other topic. Salvation done right has a lot to say in public for how the people of one dominant group in any culture should treat the people who've been pushed to the margins of that same culture. And so you see the salvation thing is not a solo sport, but a participatory event, an active team-based concept through which we seek to transform the ways we treat one another until it spills out into the ways we treat one another across all of the boundaries in our world that we've tried to draw between one another. We're good at drawing those lines, aren't we? But those lines aren't there in God's eyes. So when salvation comes along in the Bible, it most often comes to a community, a church, a family, a region. And in public life, it comes when the people are deeply convinced that a society is only as good as the ways they care for their most vulnerable citizens. In general, in the Bible, when a community awakens to a movement of salvation, there is a movement from injustice towards justice. A deep dissatisfaction arises when violence of every kind and the people of entire communities, they finally get fed up and they commit to eradicating violence. And they cease and move from glorifying war and weapons of war. And they move away from forcing their will on others for the sake of personal gain. And they move towards nurturing and embracing the well-being of the greater good. This biblical, mature view of salvation, friends, sees every person, every community, every blade of grass and tree for that matter, in fact, sees all of the world in a single, seamless, dazzling garment with no separation between where one part ends and another part begins. Truly, salvation, in the most biblical sense of the word, comes to communities and is lived out socially by groups of people, not as individuals. So when we hear the prophet Amos say these words that undoubtedly caught our attention in the scripture lesson, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, we may not realize that this is the essence of biblical salvation in both Testaments. It sounds so strange to our Western ears because we tend to listen for privatized words of individualized salvation that are often more interested in personal piety than they are in social progress and justice. But for the sake of the scriptures, the meaning of salvation means the presence of both personal as well as social transformation. 
Uh, most of us, we may not be able to put our fingers on it, but inside we actually yearn for this, even though we may not know it. We actually yearn for this kind of transformation first in our own lives, but not so we can run away with it and keep it to ourselves, but, but really for a noble purpose, I think, that God has planted in the heart of every human for a fuller connection to all that truly is. So we yearn for liberation from many things that keep us in bondage. We yearn for true sight, for clear vision, for wholeness, for the healing of wounds that we seem to develop just from living life every day. And deep in each one of our hearts, most of us yearn, I believe, for a world that is truly a better place for all human beings. Oh, sure, we all undoubtedly have disagreements about how the world that better world should be brought about, but the truth is, we yearn for it. We yearn for a better world, not just for ourselves and for our close friends or for our children or grandchildren, but for all of the people of the world alive now and in the future. Salvation responds to these two transformations, ourselves and the world. Who wouldn't want this, dear ones? That's what Christianity is when we get it right. That's what salvation is when we get it right. We don't seek to abandon this life or this planet or the communities of this world for some other world. Instead, we embrace them all as a part of our salvation journey, and we trust whatever's next to God. The one who has buoyed us up in this life will not let us down in this life or any other that is still to come. But until then, may God grant us salvation in the deepest, truest, most biblical sense, and not only for ourselves, but for all of our neighbors and for all of creation. Thanks be to God. Amen.